Hey, what's up? This is a preview of a premium episode of Champagne Sharks. If you like this preview and you want to hear the rest of the episode, go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. For $5 a month, you get access to the rest of this episode as well as all the past premium episodes in the archive. So it's a great deal. $5 a month, rest of this episode, all the back premium episodes as well. So without any further ado, let's get to it. And maybe I'm being a little paranoid here, but I also think, again, there are players whose success reinforces a system and players whose success doesn't buck a system, but sort of happens at least relatively outside the bounds of that system. And I think the thing is like, and again, this maybe gets a little paranoid, but is there on is there more people have an investment in these members of the NBA aristocracy working out than they do in someone who's not coming out of that? Like, does it sort of reinforce or hold up this entire kind of basketball establishment and, and uh, you know, validate it in a way that someone who is more like self-made or comes out of like a less um, kind of privileged situation with fewer advantages? Does that somehow represent not a challenge to like the basketball powers that be, but it doesn't necessarily like prop them up in the same way that these people coming out of that world uh, would do. Yeah, that's that's interesting going there's forward. A, there's what a line in this article that says a college degree is nice, but it's not the same as a paycheck. And I think that's something, when I was growing up, I think people are less Pollyannish about this than they used to be. But I remember people used to always think, oh, you got that paper, though. You got that degree. And, you know, more and more, a college degree is, you no. Know, kind of overrated and i think uh now more than ever people are not buying into this idea that a college degree is some great consolation prize for missing out on um you know a an, an nba career especially because like as you point out in the article a lot of times these players have to shortchange their education while in school to de- dedicate time and energy to uh athletics yeah i mean there was the scandal I, a few years ago i think it was at north carolina where like you know it came out that players basically you know weren't going to they they basically you know made up entire classes entire semesters um that where they you know they had no they weren't going to class at all they were just getting fake grades uh and it was like you know it was it was basically just like an ex, a more extreme version of what you know probably happens in in every scenario where it's like you know players are always probably their grades are always padded a little bit they're allowed to not do their work you know there's all this because there's so many pressures on on teachers to, to to pass them so that they can maintain their eligibility but this was a case where they were literally just like it was all on paper there was no no education being had and yeah i mean it just speaks to you know the fact that these you know the degree is is worthless and i'm sure it's it's seen by future employers if you're like a you know ncaa division one athlete and you go to try to get a job if you don't make the pros you try to go to try to get a regular job and you show them your diploma of course they're going to know that that diploma is worth less than than that of you know someone who went to school and wasn't a perfect uh, wasn't a college athlete so for this article to finish with this article what hope to see happen and what do you think actually will happen as far as the ncaa goes like like what's your best case scenario and then your actual likely scenario <laughs> as far as uh where all this stuff is trending can i do the bad one yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, you do the good one i'll do the bad, do one. The bad one first i think the worst possible outcome from this is and this is sort of a nightmare scenario Jesse and I were talking about last night, is that the pay college athletes model does take hold, but in this completely individualized, chaotic way where you just have individual players, agents negotiating directly with schools to pay certain players more 
than everyone else or pay them at all. Because, you know, you often, the discourse around paying NCAA athletes, sometimes it's about just how much they all rake in for the schools. But sometimes you start to hear things about like jersey sales and this guy could go pro tomorrow and make this amount of money. And there is a part of me that sort of wonders if like we are kind of just caught up in this weird neoliberal version of players getting paid by the NCAA, where some people really think the most uh, plausible version of that would just be quarterback, you know, Z getting an agent going to the school and saying, how much will you pay me to play for you this year with no sort of like collective action or collective body or, you know, agreement in place as to how labor is regulated. So that's my nightmare. Yeah. I mean, I would just, I'm not to continue on that for a second. I think it's just this, this idea of, 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 of giving players agents as the solution to the problem that players need money. And, you know, if you don't have some way to pay them, they're going to find a way to get money, whether it be by Adidas or whether it be being paid under the table, this solution of like, we're going to give 2% of them agents and let them, it's like, it's like the ultimate kind of neoliberal solution, right? It's like completely, yeah, very, very, hunger, very games. hunger games, like completely individualistic, yeah. you know, and it's, and it could very well sort of turn players against each other the way Nathaniel said. I mean, you could very well have a situation where you have, you know, the elite elect players who, you know, who get agents, you know, their first, first month of college and um, the entire time are basically on a, on a glide path to the pros and see their interest as being completely divorced from that of their of their teammates. And then, you know, a much larger group of rank and file players who are sort of divided against their their teammates and against their, you know, their fellow man, basically, um, and and who are kind of prevented from organizing uh, and having any kind of collective uh, solidarity because of this sort of internal division and this layer of inequality. There was already inequality, obviously, in that, like, you know, star athletes have advantages. But in this case, they're going to have even there's going to be even more stratification between players. And, you know, it could it could actually undermine, you know, we made this rosy scenario where it's like, oh, it could cause them to kind of organize collectively, but it could just as easily be the reverse, which is that it creates all these, you know, tensions and fractures. And it actually sort of gets to the, the article that you guys discussed on the last podcast that you did with Nathaniel, which the article we wrote for The Baffler about about sort of super the superstar dynamic in the NBA union and how, you know, the emergence of superstars in the union has kind of undermined solidarity in various ways because they have a distinct mm. set of interests. And so you, you could see something similar with the NCAA. Wow. Yeah, that's dark. <laughs> I almost wonder if I almost wonder if the the NBA is kicking back watching that scenario and thinking that same thing and saying, hmm, this is an opportunity for us to feed the G League. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Like <laughs> start funneling some of these guys into a, the G League as a way to uh, kind of, you know, make them a little happy about the situation. Well, there's, there's actually, it's funny because the NCAA has essentially said, we don't want your rental players. You know, they, they, then there was a period of time where uh, the NCAA was like, sure, give us the top talent. We'll take it anywhere we can. Like, you know, when players are coming straight out of high school, the NCAA sort of missed having that elite talent. And the NBA, then when they instituted the age limit, the thinking was, We'll send these people to college, they'll get a year of seasoning, they'll be ready to play sooner in the NBA, and people will know who they are, so they will have like name recognition and be easier to market. But now the NCAA and the NBA are not on the same page as far as the value of one and done. So that's kind of an interesting yeah. part of all of it. And I think the NBA would probably just as soon feed prospects into the G League at this point than sort of have them in the NCAA. 
system. Yeah, and I, I, yeah. I think you know the, the the optimistic scenario, going back to like what's the best case scenario, is one in which you know, yeah, like sort of what Nathaniel was just saying that this, um, or picking up on that rather, like this, this could actually this could this could further kind of undermine in people's minds the idea of the student athlete, which is obviously an, a complete myth, which dates back to the 1950s, and it was like the idea of the student athlete was basically invented in order to shield the NCAA and to shield universities from paying workers' compensation. Uh, uh, claims, um, you know, I think it came out of a case in Colorado where a player um, basically died from a head injury in football, and his widow yeah. sued the university for for or, or asked the university for workers' compensation claims, and and the NCAA came up with this neat little legal fiction, which is that no, he's not a he's not an employer employee, he's a student athlete, uh, and that's you know the origins of the of the student athlete. Oh, wow. uh, which is, you know, okay. really, I think, kind of fascinating, and it's it's uh, there's like a more detailed um, version of that story in the that Taylor Branch article in the Atlantic um, from several years ago. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of like a really sort of interesting history, and so and this is and and you know what's happened in the and just to speak a little more about graduate student organizing, you know, what's happened in graduate student organizing is that as you as as students or rather, I think I call them graduate student workers, as graduate students have started to realize that. You know, this isn't necessarily an apprenticeship that's going to lead to guaranteed future employment, but is in fact a job where you're teaching and you're grading and you're spending, you know, 50, 60 hours a week um, doing labor. As they've started to realize that it's not an apprenticeship, that, that it is that it is work, they've started to organize. And something like, I think, 24, you know, already public school grad students are in many states organized, but in, on, in private schools, um, they started organized. So where I went to went to grad school, we now have a, have a union. Graduate students uh, after 2004 were, um, had been, you know, the National Labor Relations Board under Bush had, had, had basically ruled that private, grad students at private universities were not uh, employees, they were students. And that was overturned in 2016. And it was ruled that, you know, grad students actually are workers and could unionize. And what's interesting is that um, in 2015, when the Northwestern players, uh, when the Northwestern players football team uh, took their case to court and said that we want to form a union, one of the reasons that uh, one of the rationales that the university used in, de- in denying them or uh, was that uh, was that you know, if was this case in 2004, which is that that that, that rule that graduate students were were not workers, were in fact students. And the National Labor Relations Board basically said, you know, if grad students aren't workers, then neither of you. You know, that basically, if if, <laughs> if, if you if they're if they're students, then you guys are also students. And Jeez. so that it's interesting now that now that grad students have had their rights restored under the 2016 ruling and and are now considered employees, it may be that that gives extra ammunition to the players' movement uh, and and. And, and could potentially allow them to persuade, you know, the powers that be that they too are workers. Of course, we now live under, you know, right wing regime. So I was just going to say <laughs> that, that my optimistic take is dependent upon uh, upon, upon Donald Trump uh, nominating, you know, uh, labor labor rights supporters, the National Labor right. Rights Board. So good luck with that. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> I was just going to say it's a different time right now. That we, and yeah. It's so funny how these things are contingent. They're, they're truly contingent upon a lot of times who's in office and who they appoint to courts and things like that it's unbelievable to me like everything just swings on who's in office at that particular point in time it really makes you realize that you can't you know this is the limits of electoral politics like i was yep. a grad student for for years i organized and and hoped that you know once we got a democrat in office he would restore grad student rights and this problem would be solved and i actually remember when obama was elected uh i had this you know i was basically like oh i can stop organizing now he's going to save everything he's going to solve everything and 
And, you know, I didn't stop that day, but it definitely kind of demobilized me. It made me Mm. sort of less anxious and less sort of, uh, you know, energized to go out and find my own solutions because I figured, oh, we've got a Democrat in office. The Democrats have 60 seats in in the Senate. Everything will be fine. And two things. One, Obama took years to actually do anything. His National Labor Relations Board waited until 2016 to actually restore grad student rights, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, which just shows how kind of ineffectual he was on labor issues. And then also, you know, Trump took office like, you know, the next year. And yeah. so, you know, it doesn't even matter anymore. And so it really does sort of speak to the limits of electoral politics to solve sort of certain problems. Absolutely. Especially at the national level. Yep. You know, I think that's also a trap that a lot of times we fall into is we, we look at what's going on nationally in terms of elections and then we forget everything, you know, from the state level and, and even lower, you know, at the local and city level, we forget all of that stuff and just put all of our eggs in the baskets of national politics. And, and it's a know, good analogy for what happens with the sports. Like, you know, people wouldn't care what's happening at the NBA level, but the lesser pro leagues and the NCAA stuff, a lot of us ignore yeah. as well. Absolutely. Even though that the exploitation there is far more severe than anything at the professional level. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to make sure we cover your guys' articles before we talk about other stuff going on in sports. So I want to make sure we get some time to talk about a piece that Nathaniel did by himself uh, for Baffler called uh, Something for Nothing, you know, which also ties into another topic that I wanted to make sure we spoke about in general, which is uh, Kaepernick. And I wanted to know if uh, Nathaniel wanted to summarize his own article for us. Yeah. So since last we spoke about Colin Kaepernick, uh, he's become the subject of a major Nike campaign that essentially celebrates him. It's for taking a stand and being a bold uh, individual in the world who, quote, stands for something. And notably, what it doesn't do is talk about what he stands for, endorse what he stands for in any way, or differentiate between him taking a political stand and someone who decides that they're going to work really hard and achieve any other goal. Uh, And what's interesting about it, though, is this uh, ad campaign was immediately, you know, became the latest flashpoint in the sports culture war which is sort of feeds in the larger culture war where um, you, you know, you had like weird reactionary people cutting up their Nike socks and burning their shoes. But at the other side, you had all these people like freaking out and saying that Nike had really done a good thing and feeling like, you know, endorsing Kaepernick, which Nike never did, but co-signing him in some way or giving him this opportunity to shine and make money was somehow a net win for the cause or something. And (laughs) What I was sort of writing about uh, in The Baffler was essentially this weird way that, um, and Jesse and I have written some of this about this previously, that, you know, corporations have this other side of them called a brand that we engage with in this weird personal way where it speaks to both their characteristics and qualities that somehow exist apart from their kind of corporate political agenda. And then they also allow us to like reinforce things we want to believe about ourselves. And what's really interesting about the Nike case is because it's around politics and sports and politics, it gives us this weird outlet for politics that's mediated by a brand, when in fact, if you actually were doing politics, you would be inherently suspicious of a corporation because politically corporations are pure evil. So um, it sets up this weird equation where we're essentially think we're doing politics with the help of a brand, but really that's a distraction from the fact that uh, we're doing the opposite of it when we let a brand mediate our politics. And also just sort of that we would rather subscribe to a version of politics where something like a brand can make us feel good about ourselves and about our sense of conviction, then we would really start to ask you know, the hard questions about why the hell it is that we 
allow ourselves or why it is that we find ourselves uh, with our lives so structured by sort of like corporate interests and corporate agendas and just like products, basically. Yeah, I think I think millennials have a way easier um, relationship to brands and corporations and Gen Xers and baby boomers did. And I feel like it's funny because I feel like um, the baby boomer and Gen X resistance to brands was not really coherent enough with the action plan to fight it to a degree that really got like you get the millennials in line with us and like what i mean by that is there was a recent um chopper episode that was pretty good about this they were talking about gen xers and and stuff and um but they made a good point like gen xers just had this thing about this vague thing about don't sell out but no one really knew what that meant like what does not selling out mean and what do you replace it with so there was this kind of time of ad busters where it was just like you know ads are bad corporations are bad you know don't sell out. And then corporations even like adopted that message in their like anti-advertising. Like you had like, like I remember there was this ad by Common and, and Maya for Coke. And it was like, you know, gotta be real. Don't sell out. Don't be fake. And they're both like <laughs> walking down different places and people try and get them to sell out. And they're like, I'm not selling out. And then they both took a Coke. Like, like you know, it was like <laughs> Coke was uh, keeping it real. It was uh, and Maya thinking about being real and, and oh, all these paparazzi are trying to get like uh, Common to sell out and do an action figure. And Common's like, man, fuck that. I'm keeping it real. Then he walks out the boardroom and he drinks a Coke. And, I was and like, that's, that's <laughs> a, that is the exact same mechanism that I sort of see it play in that Kaepernick campaign yeah. because it's essentially there is nothing I mean again the vagaries of selling out <laughs> or another thing altogether but there is nothing that puts you more in line with a corporation than doing a multi-million dollar spot with them yeah. but at the same time it's using that spot as a vehicle to say I'm not doing the very thing that I'm doing and with the Kaepernick thing I think it's like we think that's doing politics when really it's a total diversion from or maybe even the opposite of doing politics that would critique the structure by which we are even being given that option to begin with by a brand. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And those gen, those perfect uh, sense. Like those Gen Xers, I'm on the tail end of Gen X. Like, uh, we just knew we didn't want to sell out, but we had no idea what to replace selling out with. So I don't think we really gave millennials or younger a compelling counter narrative, you know? So, like, like uh, they said in the chapel episode, it just became like about ad busters, which got old kind of fast, you know? And those kind of fake Banksy ish type of, um, commentaries against like you know consumerisms like you know where they show like some somebody has an iv of like starbucks and the gap going into their veins like okay it's a cute image but what's the coherent action politics that you're telling people to replace brands in their life with and there really is um nothing there really is no compelling counter narrative about to replace corporations and brands in people's lives with something um you know better i mean religion is already in decline in a lot of younger people's uh value system and there's that vacuum that's left and it really has become celebrities and corporations and i think uh gen x has kind of lost that battle and i think we're seeing it in this oh. kaepernick thing because the slogan what that was very interesting like it was what is it believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything something like yeah, that. yeah and that's very value neutral because it doesn't yeah. say believe in something right no it's believe someone... in something just just believe in something so you know as someone said on twitter like you you can make that same ad about a cop 
Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. <laughs> yep. Or or or, or a Nambla uh, enthusiast, right? Whatever. Sure. Yeah. Anybody. It, it it almost is like kind of saying, "Hey, we're not taking any type of stance on what Colin Kaepernick actually believed. We're just making a free speech argument." It, like like it almost sounds like something a, a alt right person can get behind. It's just like you know, it's free speech. We're not saying what he said is right or wrong, mm-hmm. but uh, as long as you believe in it you know fight for it and in the commercial they're juxtaposing it alongside like you know a handicapped kid uh playing like a basketball or someone trying to get out of the to start in their high school team or it it becomes very individualistic like what they're comparing it to in that nike commercial just have a bunch of people striving to make it into professional sports people trying to win basketball games people trying a girl trying to play alongside the boys team it just becomes like uh interchangeable whatever you believe in just go for it hyper individualization neoliberalism and very relative yeah it's very relative and uh, like what's mentioned in the Baffler article, there's not really much talk about what he was actually uh, behind. It's almost like it's irrelevant what he believed in. Just the fact that he was willing to fight for it. And like, like you don't even know what that something is that Cap was. Uh, but but, but yeah, like people ate this thing up, exactly. you know, and and it was really kind of. I mean, not that I at this point am surprised by what anyone says about anything, but it was just crazy looking at my timeline and people were just convinced that this was like a huge moral and political victory. And I think the craziest thing I saw, um, I mean, talk about neoliberal like hellscape, was people saying this deal netted Colin Kaepernick millions of dollars. Good for him. Go get your yes. money. This is yeah. how we do things. This is a win for us. Yeah. That became and, and the, and the way to judge it. But the same thing happened before this was announced when people thought that he lost. Uh, there were some people, and including black people, there's some people like, yeah, you know, all y'all fake uh activists and stuff look what happened to kaepernick uh he has no game i mean he has no contract and all his sponsors uh dropped him so there are people gloating that his cause was wrong because he lost money as in duh when you take a stand you're supposed to lose something right but right then, so that's but, but then <laughs> when, when he got a contract and did end up making money then the other side came and was like oh see so the activism was good because look at all this bank he made and both sides are kind of missed the plot and it would be remiss if we did not kind of break down this weird shadowy backstory that came out subsequently all right so that's the preview if you enjoyed it you know what to do patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks five dollars a month and you get to hear it all later